Hello and welcome once again to The Garden Podcast, the podcast that explores some of the topics and stories we cover in our monthly magazine for RHS members, and conveniently, it's called The Garden. I'm the magazine's editor, Chris Young. In today's programme, we're looking ahead to the new year, in fact, a new decade. We're discussing some of the fabulous features coming up in the January 2020 issue, which should be arriving through your letterboxes any day now. Later, we'll be hearing expert advice on the care and cultivation of those most mysterious and rather breathtaking tropical plants, aroids. And plantsman legend Roy Lancaster will be giving us a guided tour of some of the highlights of his own garden at home. But first, well-being. In a series of fascinating and personal articles, author and columnist Leah Leendertz will be exploring how to maximise the benefits of gardening to our health, for mental and physical health. I called her to speak about some of the ideas, findings and approaches that she wants to know more about when gardening for health and well-being. Leah, you've been writing now regularly for The Garden for almost 10 years, and much the richer we are for it. But this year, you'll be doing something extra special for us, and that's focusing on the link between well-being and gardening. It's such an important topic for people at the moment, both for physical and mental health. So what's your personal experience of the positive side of gardening? For me, just feel so much calmer after I've done some gardening. I know that I particularly used to notice it when we'd been up to the allotment, when we'd been up for a good few hours and, and spent some time that you would go up feeling quite, could be feeling quite stressed. And actually, even the process of getting to an allotment with two small children is quite stressful. And then um, <laughs> somehow the kind of the magic of everything that happened up there and I think the combination of the place and what it looked like and what it felt like and also the work and the kind of sense of planning for the future and you know making steps and making something look nice and all these kind of things have come together to make me feel just really happy by the end of the day and now that I don't have the allotment I don't spend those big chunks of time so much but I am still noticing that even you know little bits of getting out can do that to me just seems to kind of order my mind really as much as anything else it's the main thing that I can do if I'm sort of not feeling too great that kind of puts my mind back into place really and kind of orders me again it's interesting you raise those issues because as you and I have been discussing in the past we are publishing the RHS is publishing a big old book called your well-being garden which comes out in February next year and that's been written by our director of science Alistair Griffiths and Matt Keatley the award-winning garden designer and others and they're really they are at last proving the link between the science and gardening and maybe what many of us have known over the years that gardening is good for you but we now have science to prove it do you think there's an increasing recognition from people by, of the power of gardening, especially with mental health? Well, yes, absolutely. Well, one of the things that you and I have been talking about and one of the things that's been uh, coming up is about that GPs have started to actually do this green prescribing, so prescribing time in gardens, which I think is wonderful because it's like, actually it's so simple and it is so powerful, particularly, I think, for kind of mental health problems. So that's actually being recognised on quite a 
high level. I know that people in sort of community groups and things like community gardening groups have long recognised that people that are having a hard time in other areas of their lives to come to a community gardening group has a massively positive effect on their mental health in particular and sort of health in general. So yeah, it does seem to be sort of trickling through. And I know within the RHS, aren't you getting a therapeutic gardener, the first therapeutic gardener starting up? So yes, it does seem like it's really being recognised kind of what we know as gardeners already without particularly thinking about it. What we do Mm. naturally and go and cheer ourselves up is kind of, yeah, getting this sort of recognition. Leah, have you uh, picked up any tips or getting the most out of that? Just, you know, you described eloquently how it kind of happens to you, but do you sort of maybe not take your phone out? Do you um, have music while you're out there? Do you have to sit down and have a cup of tea every half an hour? Are there any little tips or techniques that you do? Um, No music for me. Absolutely no. I can't think and have music at all, but that's just me. I know some people do like to. And I I just like to hear the sounds of the garden. I mean, I live in the city, but we have a really good bird population so it's really gorgeous to listen to the birds and my phone you know I'd really like to say that I don't take my phone out with me <laughs> I'd really like to say that if you that. were going to say that I was going to get really cross a good idea <laughs> but I don't know there's nice things to take photos of and exactly. stick on Instagram and yes. so you know really it's not true and then you've got to take a picture of your seeds with your cup of tea and <laughs> so that would be a big lie so no I'm afraid I do but obviously if you can, if you can step away from your phone and from that, then clearly that's very good for mental health. And I really should do it much more often, I think. <laughs> well, just keep on playing this recording back to yourself at night and you'll stop uh, taking the phone in the garden. <laughs> yeah. Cups of tea, absolutely, for sure. But one thing I've been trying to do recently, and it is a sort of mindfulness thing, I think, I know that you know that I write The Almanac, which is about kind of the different months of the year and about sort of what is special about each month of the year. And what I've been really trying to make myself do as part of that writing process, and it ties in with this as well, is to try and make myself think what's good about this moment. And that's really easy at some times of the year you know in June when your first courgettes are coming through and the sun is shining and it's warm and you can be out there in a t-shirt gorgeous and you know you're watering with a glass of wine in your hand and all the rest lovely but in on a gloomy January day it's trickier so I've been trying to you know force myself to find something good in the moment so even if it's raining and it's cold. Well, what's nice about that moment is the nice thing that my jacket is keeping me warm, even though my hands are cold, you know, I'm still, I'm feeling cosy. The way the rain glitters on the mud is, you know, know, it sounds kind of desperate, but, you know, just trying to think there is something good about each moment in the year and also that we can't appreciate all that lovely June stuff if we haven't been through all the grim January gloominess. So sort of trying to think at each moment of the year. And of course, as you go in through January, February, March, it becomes much easier because you suddenly you're seeing shoots coming up and things starting to come out and catkins and, and all of the rest actually happens very early in the year. So it's very easy to find, but equally very easy to miss and to keep your head down and to think, oh God, I can't wait for it to warm up, you know, and for spring to be here and for summer to be here. So that's my trying to do in terms of mindfulness i'm not saying i'm particularly achieving it yet but i'm trying to go okay 
this is a horrible moment, but what's special about it? So, Leah, this series of 12 individual columns will cover, in a personal way, all the gamut of information that link people to gardens, nature, the environment and wildlife. What does this series mean to you and what topics are you hoping to cover in the year ahead? I've written in the January column that I've been having a bit of a tough year, really. There's been health problems at home and, you know, various things. So it's not been an easy year and I've been feeling, you know, much more stressed than I would like to. (laughs) So I think what I'm really hoping to do with this column and, you know, generally with my life is to make a bit more use of the garden. You know, I've said that, yeah, I've always found it really calming, really helpful. And I kind of want to just explore that a little bit further and see if I can use that in a more determined sort of way, you know, or just think about it a little bit more, make sure that I'm spending time out there. Because I think when things get stressful and troublesome it's very easy to neglect going out into the garden because you know there's loads of other stuff to do and you know running around all over the place and and easy to neglect you know your own self-care and all of that stuff so I'm really hoping to get out there to think about all the kind of different aspects of how it can be helpful to me just because it's just out there you know it's just there outside the back door so you know I don't have to go off for any big appointments to try and make me feel better I can just step out and enjoy it. As ever you know I absolutely love your writing Leah and uh, the way that you share your your personal thoughts but you also help sort of expand them and relate them to to the reader which is so important for a columnist. Uh, Best of luck for the columns in the year ahead and I really can't wait to read them. Leah thank you very much. Thank you. Leahlene Dirts. You can follow Leah's well-being journey and her fascinating monthly articles in the garden throughout 2020. I'm really looking forward to learning from her about why so many of us think, and a lot of us know, that gardening really is good for you. If you're an RHS member, you'll know that the magazine is delivered direct to you for free every month. If you're not a member, why not join? Unlimited free entry to all four RHS gardens, along with priority booking and discounted entry to RHS events and shows, are just some of the benefits of membership. There are links to more info on our programme page at rhs.org.uk forward slash the garden podcast. As editor, I'm checking the final magazine layout and proofs of the January issue just before they go to the printers. It's one of my favourite times of the production cycle because I come into the meeting room, I close the door, have a cup of tea and flick through the magazine to make sure it's looking as good and reading as well as it possibly can. And there's a few highlights this month. Every issue, we always have what we call a plant hero. That's when we look at one genus or type of plants, which we really want to celebrate and really get the best of. And we have our photographic plate, which is where we compare the different selections and colours and looks and feel of the plants all on one photo. And this month, it's about camellias. Now, many gardeners will know camellias flowering in March, April time, but actually there's some that you can actually have flowering earlier on. And so some which are maybe cultivars of the species Japonica or even the hybrids Cross Willimsii or even other hybrids themselves, you can actually get them to flower a bit earlier. Some can be a bit tender, a bit more delicate, so they might need a bit more care. But there's a whole range of flower colours from whites to pinks to reds. And there's some absolutely exquisite flower types on the plate. 
debate. So it's a really important piece by a huge comedic expert, Jennifer Trahane, of, uh, tr- the former uh, manager of Trahane Nursery. And this is a, a piece all about how to grow them and why we should consider these earlier camellias as a real special treat early on in the year. I don't know about you, but I'm a real sucker for a shed. I don't know why it is, but I do like a shed and I like a garage and I like things tidy. Of course, this is my dream. But obviously, in the real world, my shed and my garage is an absolute mess, as Mrs. Young will testify. But we talked to one of our gardeners about the best way to look after your tools in a shed. So not only uh, looking after them to make sure the secateurs are sharp, but also how to hang tools and the best way of maximising space in your shed. It's a small two-page piece, but really useful because actually if you know where your tools are and you know that actually you can get hold of them really quickly, then your gardening can be quicker and more efficient as you go through the season. So it's a nice two-pager, which is a great time to be doing shed and tool care in the winter. One of the sections in the Garden magazine is all about RHS life and about making the most of your membership. And this month we've done a special double-page spread all about a shows planner. We have so many shows running through the year, we can go from April to September. So we've just done a highlight of all the shows that we're running this year, a little blurb about them, the dates that they're happening, and also where you can get more information about them on the website. It's a really useful at-a-glance guide to the shows that you may want to go to this year. We've got a houseplant on the front cover, which I think is probably a first for the garden. And we've also got three articles this month. One is a new columnist, Rob Stasevitz, who's looking at indoor gardening. So not only which houseplants to grow, but maybe terrariums or aquascaping, some imaginative ideas of bringing plants into your house. We've also got an article about Jamie Song, who anybody who's on social media will know Jamie because he's all over it with his lofty London apartment where he's growing about 100 different houseplants. It's a beautiful photo set and a really interesting article. In fact, talking of houseplants, on the 25th of January, we'll see the start of a giant houseplant takeover at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey. This is running until the 1st of March and is a hugely exciting event for Wisley. It promises to be a dramatic celebration of all kinds of houseplants set within the garden's enormous cathedral-like glasshouse. One of the group of plants that's going to be on display there is the wonderful and weird Aracy, or the Aroids. We spoke to glasshouse horticulturist Callum munro Four about these unique and beautiful plants and how best to cultivate and propagate them and how to create a tiny piece of that jungle look inside your very own home. So we've actually got quite a a large range of aroids in the glasshouse, really. Something that we really like to do is combine the slightly unusual with the more common sort of plants which you might see nurseries and in garden centres. So we've got quite a big range, so we've got big anthuriums, big philodendrons, we've got epipremnums, we've got a whole range of mixed aroids, really. The aroids that we have on display in the glass cells, we have one particularly large golden porthos or epipremnum aurea. Uh, which has really taken over one of the large pillars in the glasshouse. And that is truly amazing to see how it would grow in its sort of natural environment. We also have some quite special philodendron melanocrysums, sometimes known as the black gold philodendron, with leaves which grow up to a metre and a half long. And they sort of scramble up over rock faces and grow very much 
lithophytically, which means they grow over rock faces and they have anchoring roots, which mean they hold themselves up on these rock faces. At the moment, I've got at home a little philodendron pink princess, which has just got stunning pink foliage. It's got a stunning pink variegated foliage on it. And that also has a tendency to sort of scramble around and climb up things. So it uses those epiphytic roots, which we were talking about before, to sort of latch itself onto stuff. So, for instance, I have one growing up a model boat at home, which is just a bit of fun, really. And then one of my other favourites is the um, philodendron melanocrysum, as we spoke about earlier, the big one with the metre and a half long leaves. That's not necessarily so appropriate to grow in a house, but you could definitely give it a go. Uh, It does need a fair amount of light and humidity to thrive, really. So arids tend to like a humid environment. So, for instance, a bathroom, which... However, they don't like to be sitting in water. So there's a fine balance, really. I would make sure that the soil mixture that it's potted in is actually dry before watering it. And I would look to mist it over every couple of days, depending on the aroid, but most of them will take a good misting every day or every couple of days. For instance, I'm not watering my aroids at home at all at the moment really i haven't watered them for two weeks so i'm just keeping them misted at the moment because and they like relatively warm conditions generally tend to not get below 15 16 degrees centigrade but not on top of a radiator because they'll dry out really quickly and they they like the humidity around the leaves rather than having dry air blasted on them so Common problems really are they tend to be overwatered as a houseplant, they don't tend to get enough humidity, and they can also get things like pests and diseases. So, quite a common pest of aroids is mealybug, and the way in which I deal with mealybug at home is I get a toothbrush and literally rub the mealybug off the plant. You can use a horticultural soap or you can use some, a fatty acid based. Soap, which will degrade the meal of the mealybug and help to wash off the mealybug. They can suffer from scale as well, and I would treat that in the same sort of manner, brushing it off with a toothbrush. I should add that not all aroids are suitable for houseplants. Some will get quite large and some require a cold period as well. So generally you're looking at more of the tropical and the subtropical aroids rather than the temperate aroids. So if you'd like to see some of these majestic, marvellous aroids in situ, come to our Great House Plant Takeover. The entire concept is that there's a Victorian manor house where the owners have left in the past and the house plants have moved in. And they've overtaken beds. There's going to be big aroids climbing up the stairs. There's going to be a bed made out of bromeliads. And in the tropical glasshouse, there's going to be huge sculptures of aroids made out of other plants as well. 
So it's going to be a really cool, really immersive experience working throughout the entire glasshouse. So it's really playing on turning the glasshouse into a house where people have lived. And my role in that is that I'm helping the team to build various parts of the display and helping to plan a lot of the display as well, growing a lot of the arrows behind the scenes as well. That's my role behind for the whole display, really. And it's really a team effort. Everybody's helping each other with this display and it's going to be a big, exciting, immersive display. You can read an extended article about choosing the right aroid for you, including advice from tropical plant expert Greg Ovenden in January's edition of The Garden magazine, complete with a simply stunning photographic plate of aroids, leaves and flowers. Plus, there are links to details of the giant houseplant takeover at Wisley on our programme page. Finally, Roy Lancaster, legendary plantsman, gardening inspiration and walking encyclopaedia of all things plants. Roy has sparked a love of horticulture and nature in generations of gardeners. His passion for plants is palpable and obvious in every inch of his own patch at home, which I've been lucky enough to visit a few times. Roy has penned the first in an occasional series of articles focusing on his collection from an unusual perspective – through his windows. For many people, this is their primary view of the plants they love, viewed through glass from inside to out. So it's going to be a really relevant and insightful series of articles over the coming months. Earlier this year, James Armitage, editor of our sister publication, The Plant Review, joined Roy for a cup of tea and was treated to a personal tour of some of his prized trees, shrubs and climbers. a tree which is not in our garden at all but it's just you can see just over the hedge here in my neighbour's garden her name is Dot and it's uh, Embothium coccinium uh, one of the narrow leaf forms Lanceolatum and I remember putting that in there on the other side of the hedge she told me she planted a sucker from somebody else's tree around the corner I didn't see it for several years and then one year it was above the hedge line And from then on, it's grown and grown. As you can see, it's like a great column of lava, red-hot lava coming out of a a volcanic vent. And it's it's shot straight in the air. It's the best, biggest embothrium, well-named the Chilean fire tree, in Chandler's Ford. It's evergreen. And you can see the the buds forming late spring, so we've got the March time. It's all budding up. And then in... This year, it was in May, it started colouring up. And you notice that all the branches in between the leaves are crowded by these tubular flowers. And there are so many, they crowd the axles of the leaves and you get long arms of these firecracker red flowers. And from where I'm sitting, you'll see a big bamboo. I gave her that bamboo because it was getting too big for my garden. And uh, she was looking for somewhere to plant uh, a bamboo. She fancied a bamboo. And I said, well, this one will not run. 
It's a clump-forming one, and it's Himalayoclamus falconeri. And that is not a hardy bamboo, but it's really sheltered here, as you can see, and it's formed this huge clump. It's probably about five metres high, and it's probably about four or five metres across. It's a cracker, and it really has stopped the gap there. And that bamboo is growing under a birch that I put in called Betula luminifera. Luminifera, because of the glands under the leaf, which are shining in certain conditions, not always apparent, uh, I have to say, but so it, it kind of shines when the wind's blowing through them. The bark is quite unlike that of uh, most birches. It's not white. It's not even red or peely uh, like albicinensis. It's not dark and peely like Nigra from America, the river birch. It's like a cherry. And it is a kind of a warm, dark, some mahogany red. It has a wonderful crown. You can see it spreading above you there and above that bamboo. And it's at its best when it's in catkin. And the catkins come out in February into March. And they're really long. They can be up to at least 10 to 12, sometimes 15 centimetres long in bunches. Lots and lots. We're looking over the patio now and, you, and we're looking here from here to a tree which has what appears to be long monkey's tails and they're green those are fruiting catkins of a very special Chinese hornbeam known as Capinus fangiana and it is the largest leaved of all the hornbeams and by far the longest in its fruiting catkins and this particular tree which is about 5 metres high it's got a rounded head but I have cut the lower branches so you can see through it and isolated the crown so the crown stands out. And um, I've seen that in the wild. And I've seen it in some of the ancient um, forests, the primary forests in southern Sichuan province in China, above the Yangtze River. And there I remember standing beneath a tree of Fangiena, which must have been 60, if not 70 feet high with a huge trunk, and someone took a photograph of me standing with it as proof that this is capable of a huge size. So it's by far one of the uh, largest of the hornbeams. I've got several other hornbeams, but that is really spectacular now, and it's always uh, it's an eye-catcher when people come and they've never seen anything quite like it. I've got um, two palms in the garden. Uh, one is the dwarf palm in the front garden, uh, Camerops humilis, and also a form called Volcano, which is a very compact, special one for the smallest garden. But this one, ever since I first saw a palm tree growing in a garden many, many, many years ago, long before I had a garden, and that would have probably been Trachycarpus fortunii, the windmill palm, I thought, one day, I'm going to have one of those. But then I discovered there was another one, slightly slower in growth, more suited for a smaller garden, Trachycarpus wagnerianus. And I planted that, must have been 15 years ago, and it was about 18 inches to 2 feet in a pot. And here we are. It must be 18 feet now at least, heading for 20 feet. And it differs from the Fortunae, which is very distinct in its big leaves with the long, droopy fingertips, as it were. All the segments have droopy ends. And a bit ragged looking, but very attractive, of course. The leaves of this palm are at least half the size of the other, and they have very stiff segments. The leaves don't have droopy tips. 
So it's a neater looking palm, a neater head. And it has the stem, like the common acai and fortunae, covered in this dense pelt of fibres. It's almost like wearing a protective coat. And uh, flowers, usually early May, and they, they come out like a, on a stiff stem and then they branch, like a hand, finger-like branches. And they have these yellow flowers and that's definitely a bonus. You've got the foliage, you've got the stature, the, and the wonderful stem... And you've got the flowers. Well, that's all we've got time for in today's podcast, and I hope you've enjoyed it. We'll return to the garden next month, next year, next decade, when we'll be looking forward to more treats in 2020. Until then, from me, Chris Young, and all the podcast team, goodbye. <laughs>